Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Cooper Turley, and Cooper is an expert on all things crypto, NFTs, and DAOs. And in this conversation, we spoke about all those things, but my particular favorite part of this conversation was when Cooper shared a story that he said he'd never previously shared in a podcast before, and that was why he started taking these things seriously, his aha moment, his moment of realization, and it was an incredible story, which you can listen to, I think, around the 30-minute mark, halfway, the second half of this episode, that was just a really powerful way that he was able to describe how his life changed and why particularly it changed. So even if you're not interested in crypto and NFTs, definitely stick around for the latter half of this episode because he shared a really personal story of how he got to that point of realizing that he needed to take life more seriously. So incredible episode, incredible conversation with Cooper Turley. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it. And if you have any thoughts about this episode, let me know on Twitter as always at Hey Danny Miranda. Looking forward to hearing from you. But until then, this is my conversation with Cooper Turley. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Cooper, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. I've been having you in my ears and on my screen for a while now, just researching you, so... It's great to finally connect. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, man. I'm excited to dive into it. Awesome. So I figure probably the best place to start would be with your pin tweet, which is paid off my parents' mortgage for Mother's Day, paid off my student loans, five years in crypto, and it's starting to come together, all thanks to ETH. Take me through that. What is that about? It's about a long journey, my friend. You know, um, five years ago, I was graduating college with a music business degree. I had no conception of what I wanted to work on. I've always been very entrepreneurial in nature, and I've always had a passion for creativity and specifically music. But up until that point, I didn't really know how that was going to piece together. So when I found creative, when I found uh, crypto as this creative outlet to explore that, I was really fascinated by this new industry that was entirely self-taught. You know, it was a very new market, which meant that there was a lot of opportunity. And so the past five years of my life has been really just trusting my intuition, you know, not really following a traditional playbook and doing whatever I can to stay relevant. And, um, you know, the past year in particular, I've been really blessed to come across some really amazing opportunities to work with really talented founders. And I've now found myself in this really wonderful position of the intersection of culture and crypto, which is where I'm spending most of my time today. How do you, when you stumbled upon crypto and five years ago, what was your initial reaction this is the future. I mean, I think that it was obvious Why? conceptually that this, I don't know, man, I've just always been very like technologically forward, you know, whether it was like video games or playing RuneScape, you know, I used to sell a lot of Pokemon cards on eBay. I just saw that there was a lot of ways to make money on the internet. And so when I saw this technology that was really, you know, native to this digital age, it made perfect sense to me that this is what was going to happen in, in, you know, many years times. But sort of out of the gate, it was all just like very loosely oriented. I think it was ideologically grounded. You know, there wasn't a lot of like working products and services at the time. But conceptually thinking of technology that allowed you to make payments in real time to anyone around the world with no middleman, 
no brainer, you know, and I think that my career has largely been the result of trying to abstract away those technological principles, like helping creators understand what's really happening here, and then working with highly competent people to help bring that to life. How do you, what were the first moves you made back then? Was it to convince other people? Was it to start writing since you had the background with this song is sick? What was your first move with crypto once you realized, oh, this is really going to change the world? Curation. I mean, I live my life on the back of curation. And so what that looked like in crypto was reading hundreds and hundreds of white papers. I mean, I would literally read 10 to 15 white papers a week. I was just trying to understand like, what is happening here? Like, why are people buying the things that they were buying? You know, it's very much a trial and error process. I was buying a lot of terrible tokens on exchanges. I was really just trying to like immerse myself into the community. You know, over time, I started to see kind of these pockets where there would be sites that I was following. There was people on Twitter that were having high influence in conversation. There were blogs that were writing about this kind of stuff. And so it was largely research, you know, and at some point I started to recognize that there was a pattern being replicated here. And so after about six to 12 months of like trading, you know, participating in these projects, like learning why they were working, I was like, okay, I kind of get it. You know, I had done a couple that did pretty well. And um, I wanted to start going from being a buyer to someone that was curating these experiences. And so I went on AngelList, I was fresh out of college, and I basically found random founders that wanted to do something in crypto to bring me on board to help like get their projects into the world. And I will caveat that, you know, literally all of those projects went to zero, none of them did anything special. But through the mix, I was able to just be in the weeds, you know, I was going to crypto conferences around the world in Singapore, Bali, Thailand, wherever it might be just like meeting people, you know, and I think by virtue of being there, I started to see the secret sauce of like, this guy's a scammer. This guy's really legit. You know, like I'm going to waver here and here. And then you looked back over the next like one to two years. And when everyone started leaving because the token price wasn't going up, you started to really see the people that were here for the right reasons. And that's, I think, when things started really starting to click for me. You mentioned the patterns. What were the common patterns you saw in the projects that you wanted to be a part of long term? High conviction in founders, um, nonprofit driven. So all of the strongest projects had no interest in raising money. They had no interest in putting out a token that would go up. They had no interest in exchange listings. You know, they were really focused on development and building. They were doing a bunch of stuff that was like, um, you know, just more grounded in like sovereignty and kind of in like principles that made a lot of sense to me. And so I don't know, like, I guess it's not like one direct answer, but I would go into telegram channels, I would go into discord servers, I would go into Twitter groups, and I would find that the most competent people are often spending a lot of time talking to one another. And my goal is really just to find out where those pockets are being formed and try and make myself a part of that conversation by proving that I had a good understanding for what was happening and that I was highly knowledgeable in the projects around them. That's really interesting. So let's say that someone is graduating college today and they have the same level of conviction and desire to join this space. What would your advice to that person be? follow your playbook or something different? I think it would be just find a community to get involved with. You know, I think that there is um, a research phase and a rite of passage that's required to getting started. I don't think that you can expect to buy a bunch of ether and make a bunch of money overnight, but being able to have the conviction that if you spend enough time in this industry, that something will click. I think you're going to find something that really works for you. And so in practice, what that looks like is making Twitter a a regular part of your routine, you know, getting comfortable with discord being able to understand what's happening with things like MetaMask and Ethereum wallets, and then just poking around. You know, I think that um, a lot of people just want to be told what tokens to buy. But the reality is, if you want to have success in this industry, you really need to be in the weeds yourself. No one else can tell you what to do or where to go. 
you have to find out yourself. You have to go into a bunch of walls, hit them, get burned on projects, get rugged, you know, lose all your money, make it all back. Like there's just kind of this, uh, this weird cycle that happens with crypto. But after you spend like two or three weeks in the mix, I think you're going to find that you're pretty connected to a really special group of people. Yeah. So take us through one of those situations where you invested in a project or became a part of a project and it went to zero. What was that like? And maybe you telling the story could help someone find that opportunity and, and stay away from it in the future. Yeah, well, I will caveat that my 2017 experience is very different from the experiences you'll find today. But in these uh, examples I'm going to give, you can basically replace the term ICO with NFT. And then I think that everything's basically exactly the same. And so what this looked like for me was um, people would be excited about a project. There would be an address on a website to send funds to because some of your friends were also excited about that. You would invest in it. You would uh, hopefully get tokens back. But a lot of the time, these projects would never issue tokens. They would just be like, oh, we're working on something. We're going to release it soon. And so you basically had all of your ETH just in limbo where you couldn't do anything with it. Um, There was maybe four to five projects I invested in that either never launched their token or when they launched their token, they just did a terrible job of delivering on what they promised. And so there was never any secondary market demand. And so that valuation you got in at did not go up at all. It just went straight down. And like everyone would immediately sell their tokens. And it was basically a liquidity crunch to get anything back out. On the flip side, working for these projects, it was really working for a dream. I mean, I think that a lot of my early projects were not funded properly. They were basically working on the premise that, hey, once we get funded, you're going to be able to get a percentage of this. And so early on, a lot of my time and energy was spent helping projects get off the ground that realistically just never got off the ground. I think what was exciting to learn there was don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, Don't bet too heavily on something that's unproven. Recognize that there are going to be situations where you are going to work for free, You know, even if you're promised something in return. But that experience that you're going to get from actually doing the work is more valuable than the money you're getting paid for it. And so if you have the opportunity, I would highly recommend trying to get really involved with um, let's call it one to two key projects, because even if it goes to zero and it fails, I think you're going to learn a lot from that process, just seeing it firsthand. Yeah, that that makes sense. And when you see the similarity between ICOs and NFTs today, what are the differences, if any? Differences is that there's less promise of them actually delivering something crazy. I think that a lot of these NFT projects are saying, this is cool art. And if we sell out, we will release more cool art. And so when you think about getting rugged in that manner and the NFT products going to zero, there's less uh, onus on the creators because you kind of knew what you were getting into. You know, in this case, you're trading more rarity traits of cool looking artwork than you are the promise to deliver a billion dollar product or service. And so I think the speculative nature of trading is a lot more, you know, it makes sense to people. You know, like I said, I used to collect Pokemon cards. I think a lot of what we see now with profile picture projects is very similar to trading cards or skins and games or whatnot. So when people enter these markets, I think they're much more willing to understand that this is a hot potato. And I think that the goal is much more financially oriented, which is why I'm personally very scared of it. But um, I would say relative to the ICO projects, everyone knew you were buying ICOs to try and make a quick buck off of it. Um, People tried to not really talk about that and said they tried to be like, oh, this project's great because they're building some new technology. But with NFTs, it's very front and center. It's like, hey, I'm flipping NFTs. That's my MO here. I have no desire in like this going into anything bigger. I just want to flip NFTs and I'm at least happy that that's not being taken at face value. What warning sign should people see that this NFT craze is over or is this something that's going to go on indefinitely? It's definitely not going to go on indefinitely. My um, professional opinion is that we have about three months of NFT bull market left before everything comes crashing back down. 
I think when you look around you, really start to examine the caliber of products that are getting funded and the competency of them to understand crypto. We're now entering a phase where a lot of projects are being funded. And by funded, I mean they're selling out their their, uh, NFT drops that have like very limited experience in crypto prior to doing this launch. And so this is very similar to what we saw in 2017, where a team comes together, they have good creative talent around them, they have a good affinity for marketing. You know, they're able to really sell people on a dream. When you look under the hood of what's happening beyond that initial promise, there's not a lot going on there. And so I see, I think you see today, there's five to 10 NFT products dropping every day. Every week, there's one to two that have really high, you know, interest from the community. But what you'll notice that these life cycles are getting shorter and shorter. Before with something like a Board Ape Yacht Club, that rise was going up over the course of like three to three months, let's call it. Nowadays, with these NFT projects, you're going to see the whole thing go up and down in a matter of 72 hours. And I think that life cycle is going to get shorter and shorter. And as that gets shorter and shorter, so is the ability to profit from it. When we reach the peak, you're going to start noticing that people are getting burned when they're buying at mint price, which is very different from today, where if you mint something, you're almost guaranteed profit every single time. Hmm. So I, I really like what you're talking about. The, the life cycle of the project in the peak is something to note. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You want to expand on it? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, notice how convicted people are in the NFTs that they're holding. You know, beforehand with something like a CryptoPunk, you would notice that people would have that as their avatar for years on end. You know, Board Ape was kind of the next example of this. But you're seeing now that people are flipping between avatars a lot quicker. And I think to me what mm-hmm. that signals is that there's less conviction in these projects over a longer time horizon. It's more about momentary day-to-day trading. And I think the reason why you're seeing the accounts on Twitter pop off in the way that they are is because they're very good at recognizing, like, what's the hot flip today? And their entire job is basically staying on top of that specific demographic. But I think that that demographic is fundamentally different from this other class of founders that are building protocols, products, and services that are going to last for generations to come. And so when I think about my time, I love a good NFT flip. I'm always in the markets. I'm buying NFTs today. I bought three NFTs before this call. But I'm not out here trying to play the NFT minting game. You know, I'm out here trying to collect culture that I think is going to be relevant for years to come. And I think as you think about how to spend your time in the market, you will only go so far as a collector. If you really want to be seen as someone that's being taken seriously in this industry, you need to get involved with the community. You need to be willing to build meaningful products and services so that you can outlast this NFT bubble that we're going through right now. What does the NFT bear market look like? No liquidity. Illiquid JPEGs, <laughs> as, the, as the kids like to say on the streets. You're going to have your OpenSea account that has hundreds of NFTs. It's going to have no bids on them. The floor price is going to keep going down and down and no one's going to be willing to buy them. And what do you think about NFTs as a whole for the future of society? They're fascinating. I mean, I think that we are extremely early in this concept of ownership. When it comes to actually having an asset that represents a claim on economic and social value of a community, there is literally no better asset class for that. So what I mean by this is if I like my favorite artist, you know, an NFT can represent the master royalties on their project. Right now we're in a novelty phase where people are collecting things because it looks cool. It has different rarity traits. But when you start to look beyond that initial concept, there's not much fundamentals backing it. You know, my belief is over the next five to 10 years, these NFTs will have more on-chain proven economic value to them and more utility. And as we start to bake out that sector, I think it's going to be less about speculating on flipping NFTs and more about holding these assets over a longer time horizon because they're a very, very legitimate asset class. It's awesome. And so how do you go about explaining this stuff to, let's just say, a college friend? 
Yeah, so I'm very proud to say that every week I sit down with about three to five creators here in LA. I really give them the rundown on NFTs, crypto, everything that's happening. I like to say I'm digesting five years of experience into 30 minutes of conversation. Um, the way that I explain this is basically digital ownership. You know, for a long time, we've had this notion of collecting physical items. We've had a lot of notion of collecting items from your favorite brand, community, or individual. But NFTs and social tokens are basically the first way that you can invest in culture online. So when you look at this industry, I try and explain that scarcity is really important. Rarity games are really important. A lot of the concepts we talked about here with like trading cards and flipping and whatnot, you know, it's a full spectrum. But at the end of the day, I think it always comes down to community building. So when I ask people like why they should get involved in the space, you know, I ask them to look around at their friend groups that they have today. And when you think about how you spend your time nine to five versus on the weekend, those are two fundamentally different conversations. But what crypto does, it allows you to make money by investing in the communities that you love. And when that really clicks to people, they start noticing that they can create their own communities. They can be a valuable member of communities. And very soon from there, I think people are excited about getting involved. Yeah. And it's an interesting point about make money from being part of a community because what happens when you sell and you're a part of that community, you sell your asset and now do you lose your friends? Do you lose a sense of identity? Can you take me through that piece of it as someone way more experienced in this realm? Yeah. So I think this is why you see that these assets are performing as well that they are because there's social capital associated with these decisions. You know, if you're selling your crypto punk that you've had as your avatar for three years, that is a really meaningful conversation. And so when it comes to these high profile blue chip NFT asset classes, the reason why they've appreciated so much in value is because those holders are very convicted in holding those assets for a long time because they have social capital associated with them. You know, a lot of the times what you see in these Discord channels is a token gated bot called Collabland. What this does is it connects your Discord username to an Ethereum based wallet. So that bot is looking to make sure that you hold a specific asset. And in the event that you sell that asset, you actually lose your role in the Discord server and you get kicked out as a result. And so there's no way to really fake whether or not you actually have ownership stakes in these communities. There are now tools that are tracking that on chain. And so as you make these decisions to sell, you're basically weighing up, do I care about the social capital of being in this community more so than the ETH I can get from selling? And I think there's always a price that people are willing to sell at, which is very healthy and good. But for a lot of people, they actually value being a member of this community more so than they do the profit to be earned from selling that asset. Yeah, that that makes sense. And now I, I want to go to another one of your tweets, which is first it was DeFi, then it was NFTs. Next, it's DAOs. Plan accordingly. First of all, what is a DAO for those uninitiated? Yeah, I say that DAOs are internet communities with a shared bank account. This is basically you and 10 of your friends putting money into a pot and deciding how to spend it together. If you start to take a step back from that, I think that DAOs are basically the new crypto native LLCs. So if you are starting a, crypt, a company in crypto, you are essentially starting a DAO. And so a lot of the work that I do now is going beyond an NFT project, like thinking about cool art or whatnot. It's more so setting the foundation for you to build meaningful products and services together. And I view DAOs as the best way to connect the contributors to that community with the future vision of what they want to build. Does it ever feel overwhelming for you knowing your job in part is to educate people on these topics that you've been immersed in for so long? How does that feel? You know, recently it's been getting it's been getting more difficult. You know, I think for a long time I thrived on the back of proving to people that I knew what I was talking about. I think at this point I've done a good job at like solidifying that. And so now it's more about learning how to deflect and react to a lot of inbound attention. You know, I'm very grateful to be in a position where a lot of people of influence are coming to me for advice and opinions. 
But the difficult part is being able to scale my personal bandwidth to support all the amazing ideas that people have. You know, I think that a lot of people believe in order to have success in this industry, they need someone like me to be on their team. What I always tell them is that you don't need me to do well in this space. You know, like just going out into the mix, running an experiment a couple of times, failing and getting back up. Like there are ways that you can be successful after trial and error. And so for for my personal role, I want to be seen as kind of a aggregator of information and content. You know, you'll notice from my writing on Mirror that I only post about once every one to two months at this point. And often that's a roll up of all the things that I've been studying in the past one to two months to pass. This is very different from my early career in crypto when I was writing five articles a day on DeFi. I was writing about every little thing that came out and really just showing that I was on top of things. You know, now I think that my position is more so being um, a roll up of kind of all the key things to pay attention to and specifically helping to recognize trends and movements in the market that are sort of directionally happening so that you as someone who is new to the space can understand like, okay, conceptually, everyone's spending their time on this area. How do I slot into that? And how do I make meaningful moves in that space? Yeah. And do you think that the time you spent writing five articles a week or whatever it was really helped you as a writer and helped you uh, be able to synthesize information really well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my time as a writer is the single most valuable thing that I did for my crypto career. You know, I had a point in time when um, I was getting paid to learn. Like, I literally can't say it any other way than that. Like, I was getting paid to write about everything that was happening. I was investing in tokens. I was yield farming. I was doing all the actions that people should be doing, but I was also getting paid to research and report on that. And so that flywheel was invaluable to me. You know, um, I would highly recommend it for anyone else that's looking to get started in the space. Dude, what you just described, I got chills because I'm I'm going through that right now. I'm just got hired to basically learn for this company called Lucky Trader, learn and produce content. So my job is to just come up with the latest NFT stuff, follow the news as closely as possible, interview the leading people in the space. So that's just going to lead to more and more opportunities, connections, and knowledge that I previously never had. So it's really exciting. I wasn't, I didn't know what NFTs were. Uh, probably a year ago, right? And now it's like, this is my job to do this. So what advice do you have for me personally as someone who's just, is in that position, getting paid to learn? I would say going deeper beyond these initial conversations, I think is really important. You know, what I would challenge you to do is be able to have highly sophisticated conversation with thought leaders that go beyond the surface level topics. I think that for new listeners, it's really exciting to talk conceptually about what are NFTs, what are DAOs. But what I found the most useful for my growth was Getting into a position where I could nerd out with someone on the deepest rabbit hole of this industry allowed me to have high conviction in the plays that I was making. So as I spent my personal time using my knowledge to my advantage, I didn't need to rely on someone else to tell me whether or not I was making a good decision. I knew that it was a good decision to myself. And once that happened, I then started noticing that people were much more willing to follow those decisions on my behalf. Do you have a technical background? No, I've deployed one smart contract in my life. (laughs) Yeah, that's something that is intimidating for me personally. I feel like as someone who's not technical at all, very much, I understand and I'm aware that a lot of people are much smarter than me in this space and from a technical standpoint specifically. So did that play a role in hesitancy to do anything or do you have any desire to learn any technical skills in the future? I'm not sure that I have a desire to learn technical skills, but I made sure that I was able to speak with technical people on a very literate level. So like I said before, reading white papers, understanding how smart contracts worked, understanding what consensus mechanisms were, 
you know, if we were to pivot this conversation and talking about optimistic rollups, I could hold my own in a conversation for a very meaningful amount of time. That doesn't mean that I'm going to utilize that knowledge in a day to day, but I think it was very helpful in proving competency. What I would say is different now is that human skills and cultural skills are being valued just as much, if not more than technical skills. And so as we enter this new market, I think that being able to have street smarts is actually just as important as being able to deploy a smart contract. I think that the most successful people are the ones who are able to really cross navigate that bridge effectively. So they can hold their own with developers and they can hold their own with people of influence. But I think it's definitely not a requirement to get started. And the thing I'd pull away here is that if you want to have meaningful impact in this space, you need to be able to know how coders think and how developers are acting in their day to day, because those are the people that are going to actually bring these ideas to life in a really meaningful way. So how do developers think? They think a lot about, uh, it's a great question. I mean, I don't want to broad strokes it as someone who's not a developer, but they think very intentionally about the mechanics that drive these ecosystems and primitives. So things like on-chain identity, things like uh, immutability, things like decentralization, you know, they care a lot about how decentralized is the network, you know, is this work existing on-chain or is it coming from a factory contract? There are little nuances in some of these NFT projects that are so small that as like an average person, you would never think to know what they are. But under the hood, you know, as you start to look at smart contract architectures, you think start to look at custodial services, as you start to look at things like admin keys, you know, there are kind of very small nuances where it starts from a very handheld service. So let's use something like Nifty Gateway as an example, where they're minting the NFTs for you, you're buying it with a credit card on the surface, it looks fantastic. But as you start to get the opinions of developers and more competent people in crypto, they start to challenge the idea of custody. They start to challenge the idea of um, centralization. And so you start to find that as you go deeper down the rabbit hole, there are pockets of culture, specifically of NFTs, that are being collected by the highest renowned developers in the space. Because that's And that's because it's meeting the check marks of doing crazy on-chain shit that people would never actually think about, but that to them means the world. Do you think that will be more important in 20 years or do you think that they're just focused on something that's important to them in this moment it's a really good question i struggle with this a lot because i came from a very crypto native community background and so the idea of decentralization and sovereignty is top of mind for most of my closest friends in the space but i find myself leaning towards a world in which there are far more centralized products and services than what we see today you know, I very much see this playing out the same as the internet era, where at inception, everyone was very ideologically grounded. They were very satisfied with the idea of like pure ownership and control of your digital identity. But as we started to scale, we noticed that most of the value was captured by centralized aggregators. I think the difference here is that there will be an open layer of the internet that exists from now through the end of time. You know, the backbone of this space will be a blockchain like Ethereum that's not owned by anyone, it's owned by everyone. But I think as you branch outside of that, you notice that the pockets that are built on top of that will become more... Um, centrally driven. And I think the biggest challenge that we have in the space is figuring out how to reinvent that centralization model so that if I'm building something like an Amazon on the back of crypto, the systems that are in place are fundamentally driven to reward my community members, even if the products and services themselves are abstracted away to make it easier for people to get started. You mentioned Amazon, a crypto version of Amazon, and Packy McCormick recently had a great post on this about what would Jeff Bezos create if he was just building his company today. And I'm curious what you think as someone who spent a lot of time in the space, what do you think, what type of company would Jeff Bezos create today if he were to create a Web3 or a crypto company? I think it would just go to OpenSea and take their fee out of the gate and then just make a completely free and permissionless marketplace. And 
I've seen you tweet about this. The the idea that OpenSea needs to take away the fees, and that goes to the decentralization piece of crypto in general. And do you think something like that is going to come about? Yeah, and I would caveat that um, taking away the fees is very different with sharing it from those who create the value. And so I actually don't think that it's wrong of OpenSea as a marketplace to take a commission for the product that they're building. I think what's different is that they're capturing that fee into a centralized company that is not sharing that upside with its community members. I understand that path. I think it makes perfect sense. This is why Coinbase is so successful. And I think there's an argument to be made that that is the right decision for them. But what I struggle with is if your product lives entirely on the back of on-chain actions, in the case of OpenSea with NFTs, having a centralized system that is geared towards IPOing as your sort of exit liquidity over there being some sort of community-owned vehicle and treasury feels fundamentally broken for the type of product that's being built there. Is that what ShowYou is attempting to do? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of uh, people are attempting to do. I think what OpenSea has miles ahead of everyone else is they have the best product team in the game. You know, the reason why no one has come to fork OpenSea is because it's exponentially harder to fork a product than it is to fork a protocol. You know, when you look at something like Uniswap and SushiSwap, the reason why SushiSwap worked is because Uniswap is just a series of smart contracts. Their front-end interface was literally two buttons to swap in between different tokens. So when you tried to create a new version of that, it was very easy to just take those contracts, replicate them, and then spit out a new front end. But when you have a product like OpenSea that is actively being maintained by 100 plus employees every day, that is not easy to replicate. You know, the value in OpenSea is its uptime. It's not in its technology. And I think that this primitive is exactly why we haven't seen someone overtake OpenSea or come anywhere close to it. And honestly, why I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. So you think OpenSea will be the eBay or... Will it be the Amazon? What what would you compare OpenSea to in a Web two world? Is it Amazon or eBay, from your perspective? Um, kind of a mix of both. You know, I think the thing that uh, OpenSea has for it is it's so flexible in the way that sellers interact on the marketplace. It's an aggregator of items that are not naturally minted through OpenSea, so it's kind of this like global connector that I think is uniquely enabled by crypto. I think that. Um, it will continue to lead. I don't see anything that's remotely close to it, but I think that conversation around community ownership will be its Achilles heel. You know, if we look five years into the future and we look at a world in which NFTs are deeply integrated into everything we do, if OpenSea is still collecting a 2.5% service fee to a centralized company, it is inevitable to me that some 18-year-old kid in their bedroom is going to do everything in their power to build a version of that where all that revenue is shared directly with the community. And I think given the viral nature of crypto community members, if they can build a team around that, that's really functional and really sustainable. I could see a world in which they have a good shot at coming for a large percentage of their market share. It's fascinating. So what is currently the thing that when you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to do this in my day. Yeah, I'm excited about working with internet communities. I think that there's so many different ways to get involved. There's so many exciting people working on so many exciting things that my day is basically spent helping to advance whatever everyone else is working on. You know, I very much live my life in a in-moment um, day-to-day operation. I don't try and think too much about what I'm working on next week. I spend my time working on whatever is most exciting in that given moment. So that allows me to stay up to date with a lot of really cool and exciting trends. Yeah, you were talking about how, before you cut off, about how at one point you were more interested in onboarding new people into the space. And now you're just focused on the people who are in it already. And I'm curious when that shift occurred for you and how you came to that realization. It's a great question. I think that it's not my job to sell you on why crypto is exciting. It's my job to help you once you understand that that makes sense. 
And so what I found is that I could spend all of my time speaking to all these people about why they should care about crypto. But the reality is they need to have that conversion for themselves. It's my job to help you once you see that crypto is the future and you want to integrate that very meaningfully into your brand. You know, I'm here to help point you in the right direction. But I think that that state of mind is fundamentally different from me being a salesman for the space. Instead, I see myself as more of like a connector where once you're actually willing and able to take that leap of faith, be able to say, hey, spend some time here, here and there. And once I step back and walk away, you should be able to sustain on your own. Yeah, because it's kind of like telling someone in 2000, like, hey, the Internet's going to change the world. You could shout from the rooftops as much as you want, but eventually everyone's going to know it and everyone's going to notice it. And it's like, might as well spend your energy building that Internet that's going to change those people's lives rather than just trying to convince people about it. Is that correct from your perspective? That's exactly correct. And what I've found is that me working on projects that then reach the masses is highly more effective than me trying to communicate one-on-one with each individual person about why this is exciting. You know, when I think about the DAOs that I spend time in, I see them as amazing vehicles for growth. You know, I see them as ways to involve new people. A lot of the social clubs that I am are meant to be very inviting to new members in crypto. And so as I start to create stories and narratives of success in crypto, it's much easier for people to get involved after seeing that rather than it is by me trying to tell them, five tokens to buy, five DAOs to join, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's much easier to just go and do the work, show people all the value that we're creating, and then have them be sold on the back of that. Yeah, so let's say I'm sold on joining a DAO, right? I don't know which one to join, but for the sake of this, let's say it doesn't matter. How exactly do the mechanisms of, how does it work? Like, I've never, I've never been in one, but I'm so curious about it and curious about how do people vote on things? How do people get things done and how is how does that work in general i know it's a, a basic question but i'm super curious no it's a great question and i would say that you have joined a lot of communities that directly resemble DAOs in the past you know it's just been from a very different fabric so joining a group chat joining a fantasy football league joining a cod lobby to play video games together these are all basically the same thing as DAOs. the only difference now is that there are assets that represent ownership in those communities so your question about how you join that you know v1 is as simple as joining a discord server It's getting in the mix with other people that are in that community. It's introducing yourself and finding other people that are excited about what's being worked on there. It's paying attention to key conversations. So staying up to date with what's happening in that community. And then you'll find on the governance side of things, there are forums and channels in place to stay up with really key decisions in a very fast manner. So basically all of these communities is using something called Snapshot for governance. This is a page where people are posting proposals to the community to enact changes on behalf of that community. So for example, if I want to spend $10,000 to hire you to come and record podcasts for us, that'll often be put through a community vote. That community will have a space to talk about it in Discord. And once it's time to make a decision on that, it'll be put up to a snapshot vote where all those token holders are voting yes or no on whether or not they want that to happen. And in the event that that, is, that passes and it's voted yes, you'll then see key owners of that community allocating funds out of a community treasury to go ahead and make that happen. What percentage of people who own, own community tokens actually end up voting on these issues? Obviously, it depends, but what's the range? I would say 1% to 10% generously. You know, I think the biggest um, eye-opener for me was recognizing that social clubs, so things like FWB, Forefront, Seed Club, Bankless DAO, you know, communities that were much more grounded in the human-first nature of things have much higher voter turnout than these large DeFi protocols which are managing billions of dollars of capital. If you go to the snapshot page for Bankless DAO or FWB, you'll notice that we have anywhere from 100 to 500 unique voters on every proposal. 
No one is telling them to do that. There is no direct incentive to participate. But because these DAOs are grounded in a much more human-first nature, the rate at which these members are participating is much, much higher. I think realistically, governance is driven by a couple of key contributors. You know, there needs to be people who drive forward proposals and you can't expect everyone to participate. But what you can do is be really transparent in that process and make sure that the people who do want to be involved have a space to be able to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you got paid $6,000 by Blau for writing a blog post. Was that related to the DAOs at all or was that different? It was an extrapolation of my work in DAOs. You know, I think that was my first NFT I've ever sold. You know, my career has been built off the back of writing. And so that was an essay that I was very passionate about. There was a really awesome experiment where we did a crowdfund for it. So very busy on my day to day. You know, I haven't had as much time to write as I'd like, but I really wanted to find time for this article. So we said, hey, let's go ahead and raise two ETH for me to be able to intake 10 to 20 hours of my life to write a really, really thorough report on what I've been researching. You know, that crowdfund sold out instantly in like two minutes. I then had the time and space to go and release that. And as I started sharing that within my network, you know, people were excited about the idea of supporting me. You know, I don't want to speak for Justin here, but I don't think he has any intention of ever reselling that. I don't think he sees it as like something that he's going to make 100x on. But I think the idea of him supporting me and my creative craft and allowing those uh, that ETH that was spent on that NFT to be shared with the backers who funded me to write that essay. It was a really holistic community experience and one that just really spoke very highly of kind of what the core principles are that we're looking to drive forward here. How do you think about, because it seems like from my perspective, at least that crypto changes so quickly and there's so many things happening at once. How do you think about what lights you up and what your interested in because what you're focused on today in the day-to-day could be so different than what you're focused on a year from now or six Mm -hmm. months. So how do you think about that? I think about staying tapped in. You know, I think about the energy and the excitement in the community. I think less about what I'm working on and more about who I'm working with. And so as I look around me, I think about the people that I'm spending all of my time with. And if those people are competent and driven, I think I'm always going to be happy. I think that it's a very dangerous game to expect that you're always going to be able to stay up on everything. You know, fortunately for me, when I started my career, I was very young. I didn't have a lot of commitments. I had no family. You know, I was very early out of college, so I had a lot of freedom to be able to really deep dive here. And so when I take a step back, I think putting yourself in a place of productivity, so caring a lot about your mental and physical health. You know, I'm completely sober now. I'm very happy about that. I meditate twice a day. I read every night. You know, I put myself in a position to be very productive for large periods of the day. And I think that availability to be highly focused on things that are exciting to me sets me up in a really amazing spot to always stay up with what's going on. Yeah, let's talk about the wellness habits you've maintained because that's amazing that you're sober now. And I think that that has played a huge role just from the outside and your own success is like you got that internal locked in. Take us to the point when you realized and started to make these changes. Yeah. So, I mean, we're deep enough in the podcast. I'll, I'll go a little bit more intimately into my uh, personal upbringing. If anyone's this Please. far, welcome into my, my inner life. Um, two years ago, I was at a New Year's Eve show with my friends for a band called Lotus. This is one of the jam bands that I love the most. Me and my friends would go and see them for New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve every year for like five or 10 years. And um, I was candy flipping at the time. And so I was on some psychedelics, having a good time, dancing around, enjoying music. And I kind of looked around me and I just kind of recognized that I was on a fundamentally different path from a lot of the people that were around me. You know, I felt very strongly that I have a high impact and a high potential to make a difference in this world. And when I thought about what that looked like, I recognized that I needed to sacrifice a lot of the recreational activities that people participate in to be able to have a meaningful impact in this world. And so something really just clicked inside of me. I don't really know what it was, but 
that next day just cut everything out of my life. You know, at that point I was already already waning down on smoking weed, drinking, doing extracurricular things, but um something just hit me very viscerally then. And once I started to notice how powerful I was and being like highly motivated in my craft and being really focused on my career, it was a snowball. And after that I started to become obsessed with productivity. I started to become obsessed with, you know, moving the needle forward on things, being productive in my day-to-day, doing highly competent work. And when I started to optimize for things that had high leverage situations, I became very fortunate to have found success. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those two things were directly correlated to one another. So what is the day-to-day? It's crazy that you had just like an aha moment, that light bulb switch. And so what was it? Next day, right now, I'm going to meditate twice a day? Like what was the next month when you, after you had that light bulb like? So I'll call out a book called Atomic Habits. This was a very formative book in my development. Um, What you'll learn from that book is that forming highly addictive uh, habits that are very influential in your life is very, you know, it it really helps out, you know. And so it wasn't like I started meditating that day after. I've been meditating for five years. I probably can count on one hand the number of days I've missed since then. But I slowly just stacked up these productivity things where it was like, I've always knew I was headed in this direction, but one day I just sort of wanted to to really optimize for that. And I started cutting out things that I noticed took away my energy, things that weren't really benefiting me. I stopped hanging out with people that weren't really doing a lot of stuff with their life. And I really started to think about who I was spending my time and energy through. And, you know, I don't think it was one specific day, but I think having a clear cut realization that I am okay with spending less time with people that I've known in the past in order to open up new opportunities for myself in the future. You know, since then, my life has just been a, a channel of really exciting and amazing energy. And I think that I put myself in a good position to be able to learn. How did you start to, you said you went really deep into productivity. What were some of the takeaways that you learned initially in that spurt that you said to yourself, wow, this is really game changing? It's a great question. I've never really reflected on it. So this is all off the cuff, but um, spending my time working with highly competent people, I've always been most inspired working with people that were really great at what they do. And so spending ways for me to, for me to be the dumbest person in the room, you know, I like the quote, if you're the smartest people, smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room you know, always being vulnerable and understanding what I don't know. So if I'm very new to something, I'm very forward about saying, I have no clue what you're talking about. Please teach me about that. I became very fascinated by learning how all systems worked. And so when I would meet someone or I'd go on a date, I would always spend time saying, how does that industry work? You know, what is your advancement in this company look like? Do you have ownership in this company? Do you have ownership in your community? And starting to frame my work and my social life together, I slowly noticed that it's this is my personal opinion. I think it's okay to not have a separation between work and social life, specifically if you're really driven and passionate about what you do. And so a lot of my past couple of years has really been just trying to put myself in a position where I can be very passionate about the conversations I'm having, spending time with people that are highly influential in the work that I'm doing, and overnight creating a, an environment for myself where there is a lot of incredible opportunities around me so that I can be highly selective about which I'm working on and which ones have the most high impact. There's a great quote about work and play that I want to read to you if I can pull it up real quick because what you're talking about is is something that I think about often too. So let's see how quick my Googling skills are. <laughs> the master in the art of living. The master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his information and his recreation, his love and his religion. He hardly knows which is which. 
He simply pursues his vision of excellence at whatever he does, leaving others to decide whether he is working or playing. To him, he's always doing both. It's a quote from James A. Missioner, I believe. And That's I fire. That's absolutely describe. fire. You got to send that to me after, man. I really love that. Yeah, man. And it describes your life and what you talk about perfectly. So I'm, I'm just really grateful to spend this time with you. Do you have any final closing pieces of parting wisdom for someone pursuing the highest version of themselves, whether that's mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever it may be? You can drop it now. Yeah, I would say uh, treat yourself with self-love. You know, I think that there's a lot of influences out there that make us think lesser of ourselves, but you are incredibly powerful. I think you are completely in control of your own life. And so do everything in your power to set yourself up for success. And you're going to find that you're going to live a very happy life. Cooper, wise, wise words. Where can people connect with you further? Definitely follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active, at Koopa Troopa. I've been building up the IG game a little bit more here in LA, also at Koopa Troopa. And for those nerds out there that want to dive deep on Discord, I'm at Koopa Troopa number 9799. I love it. And definitely follow this man's Twitter because he's always dropping wisdom and great writing. Thank you for spending the time here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man. This is awesome. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Cooper Turley. You can let me know your thoughts about this episode on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, on the YouTube comments, if you so choose. I want to get the reach of this show out to more people. And so I'm diversifying and going into more platforms and I'm excited to interact and see you on any one of those platforms at Hey Danny Miranda on all of them. Looking forward to talking to you, to connecting with you. And I'm grateful you made it to this point. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I will see you in the next episode.